I went to Florida in 2012 for my first uh, real treatment center. I went out to rehab. I did well for like 45 days. While I was in Florida, that was the first time I started, you know, IVing substances. My addiction progressed massively. I wasn't at an all-time low yet, but that was where, like, all the things I said I was never going to do, it ended up happening. Welcome back to the Locked In with the Invic podcast. On today's episode, we have Will Milligram to share his story of battles with addiction, what it was like to be homeless on the streets of New Jersey, the near-death experiences he encountered along the way, and how he was able to overcome it. Guys, folks, everyone that tunes into the show, we now have new merch in stock. Go to ianbick.com to check out our selection of hoodies, t-shirts, and beanies just in time for the holiday season. You can use code LOCKEDIN at checkout to receive 10% off your order. That's code LOCKEDIN at checkout. I want to give a big thanks to all of our viewers and listeners that not only tune in week after week, but also tell their friends, their family, their coworkers about the podcast and help get the word out there. It means the absolute world, and I wouldn't be here without you guys. Remember, you can help support the show by hitting the subscribe button on YouTube or giving us a follow and leaving us a review on whichever site you listen to this podcast. Sit back, relax, and enjoy my interview with Will Milligram. Will, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're, of course, uh, buddy. You're local to the area. Yes, moved to Danbury like two and a half years, three years ago now. Why Danbury? That's such a random place. Well, I grew up in Brewster, right over the border. And uh, at this, when I was looking for an apartment, I'm like, oh, it's cheaper in Danbury. I can get a sink. You know, it was a little more affordable. So at that time, I was just getting sober. My first apartment, and uh, it went good, man. It actually was exactly what I needed. Yeah, and you know, know, Danbury is actually a good location because it's you know an hour from New York City. You got Stanford nearby. You got Norwalk. That's right. Not bad, but no one really knows of Danbury, which is crazy. I mean, they know of it from the trashers and and all that (laughs) stuff, but that's about it. Shout out to AJ Galante. Yeah, Yeah, he was on the show uh, a couple months back, and. We're going to be launching his uh, Danbury Trashers podcast in our studio here, which yes, is cool. That's awesome. But yeah, let's let's dive into the reason why we're here today. Your story, yeah, incredible story. Um, Thank you. You know, you you've gone through a lot in your life at a young age. I have, and those are the stories that are most inspiring because you were able to overcome that. Um, let's take it from the top, going back to early childhood. Where did you grow up? Where did you come from? What's that early childhood like? So I'm from Brewster, New York you know, pretty basic family. My dad worked all the time. My mother actually works in the substance abuse industry. So from an early age, you know, I was always uh, involved with, you know, I'd go to work with my mom every now and then I'd see the patients and I didn't understand it at a young age, you know, but as time went on, um, you know, my behavior started to change at a very early age, like four, five, six, I had like very uh, obsessive behaviors, you know what I mean? And those behaviors were warning sign number one. And for me, I didn't notice it. Nobody else noticed it, you know? And uh, I mean, it was tough because, you know, addiction and mental health runs in my family, you know? And my mother has had her issues in the past, but thank God she's doing incredible. She's great. 
and uh, around, I was around 11, I think around 10 or 11 years old. My mother and father decided that, you know, they were going to go their separate ways, and that's what truly, like, set things off for me. Um, they got divorced, you know. My whole life, it, it was pretty much everybody, uh, a lot of chaos in my family. My mother's Italian, and my dad is uh, has, like, Russian and German in him, so it's... It was very hectic. All the holidays, I was drinking at a young age. You know, it was uh, definitely exciting to say the to say the least. But as time went on, you know, I learned that I could deal with all my issues through a drink or a pill. You know, at 13 years old, I I ended up breaking uh, a bone in my back wow. and uh, snowboarding, and um, I got prescribed oxycotton at 13 years old, and. From there, you know, the first day, I'll never forget, I was, like, hysterically crying. You know, I got brought to the hospital. They gave it to me, and within a matter of a second, my whole body just settled. I stopped crying, and I was home. <laughs> you know, like, I was like, oh, my God, this is uh, how I want to feel forever. Come to find out, it would be what completely broke me years down the line. But... um you know, it's uh, it's one of those things where, you know, for me, it took a while to to realize and accept like what was happening. You know, I mean, I was spiraling very quickly and I didn't have anybody saying, hey, you're doing the wrong thing. You know, hey, you're going down the wrong path. And, uh, <laughs> you know, by the time, um, you know, all through high school, same thing, partying every single night. You know, I started getting into uh, extracurricular activities, making money and, um, you know, wrecking cars every other week. I literally to this day, I've had 15 cars and I'm 31 years old. Oh, you were that kid in high school. I was that kid, <laughs> you know. We hated those types of kids in high school that always got Dude, the brand new car and then it was, would smash it. wasn't it. new cars. They mm -hmm. were more just, you know, I would always be on the go. I worked a lot and... Uh, I'd always get like a little rice or Honda or whatever. And then within the matter of, you know, a week or two of owning it, I would have crashed it. You go to like those car meets and stuff at Starbucks? I used to. Or... I used mm -hmm. to when I was young, you know, and yeah. that brought a lot of trouble for me too, you know. Were being... you popular or were you the bu or bullied or the, maybe even the bully? So when I was growing up, like when I was in like middle school and stuff, I was bullied often. You know, I have big ears. I have a big nose. And, uh. You know, nowadays, I'm just, I'm proud of who I am. But growing up, that was a very, you know, it was a tough thing because, you know, I didn't have the courage to, like, defend myself when I was younger like that. And as time went on, I was like, you know what? Like, I found out one day, I was like, I know how to fight. You know, like, we were locker boxing after a lacrosse game. And then from that day, I'll never forget, like, you know, that whole scenario shifted and I became the person that was like, always looking for a fight, always picking a fight, causing a problem, you know? And that, that goes back to the behaviors, you know, at a young age, like things that uh, normal kids, like, you know, I wasn't, I was never normal. There was no normalcy in my life ever, you know? And uh, as time went on, you know, I wouldn't say I was never like a bully because I was always the one like trying to, like I had a lot of friends in school that had special needs and like, I was close with them. Like, I'd try to, in a way, like, I'd want to protect them, you know? And it, uh, sometimes it ended up being a flaw, like, causing more problems for me because 
I'd end up getting suspended for something that had nothing to do with me, but I, you know, involved myself, you know, I'd went and defend some, you know, for somebody else that couldn't defend themselves, you yeah. know, and who do you think you're closer to your mother or your father? It's a good question, man. I mean, when I was younger, it was my mother, but as when my mother and father got separated, you know, my dad moved to Mayapak. And at that time, I think he had a fear that he wasn't going to have us as much or maybe whatever. So like he would allow us to party. My dad was like the cool dad, you know? So as time, you know, as I got into my teens and my twenties, my dad definitely was like my rock. You know, he, uh, he really helped me out a lot. Like, like with legal troubles, he's seen me, uh, he pretty much might as well of like been my running buddy, but he doesn't, you know, use drugs or alcohol. Yeah. You know, he used to uh, think he was doing anything in his power to help me or protect me, but really it was just like enabling the crap out of me. Like, you know. Looking back on it now, do you put blame on their divorce for a lot of the things that would occur? I mean, at one point I did, but today I, I take ownership, you know, and it's not that, like their divorce caused me to go do do what I was doing or, you know, it's it's not that. I think that at a young age, a child doesn't know how to handle that, you know? And I think it definitely played a big role into why I was rebelling and doing things that I was told not to do and, and whatnot. But I don't necessarily think that that's like the sole cause. You think you were rebelling to get your parents' attention because they were focusing on their relationship and not on you? Very much so, you know? and. It was almost like like a cry for help without a cry for help. You know what I mean? Mm. Like I was almost, uh, you know, and so I'm going to, I'll ex like this is kind of weird and, and to this day, like I'll never forget it. So I believe that I had these, uh, you know, tendencies, like these behaviors. I think I had them from the start, like from when I was a baby. You know, I remember one day, being as tall as the arm of the couch, you know, in my living room. And my dad was sitting on the couch and, and like an intervention show was on the TV. And I was in there, you know, running around. And I remember, you know, I watched a woman who was using narcotics on the show. And um, I had this feeling in my stomach when I was watching it. And I was like, I was like, you know, I was like, Dad, have I ever done that? Have I ever tried that? And he was like, no. He was like, what are you talking about, you know? But come to find out, 10 years later, the feeling that I would get when I would be on my way to pick up substances or when I would just get what I needed and know that I was going to go get to use or get high, that was the same feeling that I got watching that show 10 years prior. You know what I mean? So, I like, I believe that, you know... And there's a lot of like science out there, but I just, I believe addiction is like, it's genetic and it also, you know, environment plays a huge role. You know, I think that some people are born with it, you know? So and it needs to be like triggered though. Like you could be born with it. Spot on. And then dude. something triggers, like in your case, the divorce and the accident. Correct. And something that's reoccurring on the show is I've interviewed a lot of people that have suffered through addiction and yeah. reoccurring themes are an accident where they get prescribed specifically pain yeah yep. pain meds and then a divorce um and those are both like when those are put together in your case it's a kind of a recipe for disaster 100 percent. did you did you have a aspirations at all before this kind of like starts to go down south 
Um, yeah, I, so I had, I was very passionate about like cars, bikes, you know, like that was my thing when I was young and I always wanted to have my own shop. You know, I always wanted to be my own boss growing up. You know, I started a landscaping business when I was like nine years old and would cut all the lawns in the neighborhood, you know, and it was more of a, uh, you know, it's, it's crazy how powerful, like, you know, your environment and like the quality of life can, it could, it takes all that away. Like, you know, at one point I was so driven and like wanted to retire everybody in my family and, you know, and thankfully that does come back. But once I found substances, nothing else mattered. You know what I mean? Like it, uh, it, it changed me as a person, you know? You ever sit back and think about those times of what you could have been before addiction took over. Like sometimes I'll think like with the club, I'm like, I have these flashbacks and I'm like, this could have went so differently. Like it could have been something and it, and it yeah. hurts, you know, and it makes you sad when you think about it. So what is like that feeling for well, you? I'll tell you what, man, like weirdly, I believe that like the path that we take bad or good, it doesn't matter. It's paved for us. Like even like, it's very unfortunate, you know, that, we, some of us have to deal with like terrible things in life, but I don't believe that I would be in the position that I'm in now if I didn't go through what I've been through. Like, you know, as we'll get more into my story, you know, I've spent over three and a half years in uh, treatment centers, you know, and like I've been to 44 programs over the course of uh, 15 years. And for me, I was always in like a networking guy. I love talking with people. I love, you know, uh, figuring out people, you know, I'm very observative. I'm always watching what's going on around me. And, uh, you know, I took a little piece from every single place that I've been. And like, you know, I ended up applying that into helping other people, you know, and I didn't even know that this was going to be my journey. You know, to be honest, I didn't think I was going to make it past maybe 23 years old. Yeah. You know, I had full intentions on uh, burning it and running it till the wheels fell off. And but a lot of people don't make it. I know. A lot. I know. And they don't even make it to that first facility. You've made it through count dozens of Dude, facilities. Unfortunately, you know, I, I work in the space, you know, and um, I do help a lot of people. My social media is, uh, you know, surrounded with, you know, it's it's there to help people that are struggling with substance abuse and mental health. But... I have over a little over 50 people in the last like five or six years I've lost that were close to me due to addiction and mental health. Um, you know, my best friend, Bruce, you know, uh, rest his soul. But, you know, this kid was like the mo one of the most incredible humans I think I've ever met, you know, and it's always I feel the people that have the most talent and you see doing the biggest things that don't make it you know yeah that are the ones struggling inside yes, you know i mean we see that with actors that 100%. we think as outsiders have everything in the world and they're struggling internally that's right and maybe that's society not giving them the ability to speak on it or they think it's not okay to talk about it well there's an image that people feel that they need to upkeep like dude for a long time i wasn't before like i got into social media i was like terrified to let people know what I was dealing with, you know? And I mean, I don't want all the kids I was in high school with, a lot of them, you know, were getting married, doing this and that. And I'm 
still battling an opiate addiction, you know, and eventually, you know, it got to a point where there was no hiding it. You know, Will would disappear every other month. Like I'd be all over the country, you know, going to different rehabs, doing this and that. And, you know, I got to a point where I was like, why not like create something with what I have, right? Like the universe, you know, what it, whatever it is that I believe in, you know, brought me on this path and I'm still here. I was, you know, I shouldn't be here with all the stuff that has, uh, happened and uh you know i'm like all right like the day i i got sober this time uh december 15th of 2019 i went back to rehab for the last time and the person that got me help was like you got to promise me one thing he was like that you're gonna do whatever it takes to help the next person and when i started doing that my whole life changed yeah. you know my heart softened like I started feeling again. I started realizing that, dude, I have a passion. Like, I didn't know what I wanted to do literally until four years ago. You know, I'm 31 now. So, and in such a short period of time, so much could happen. Yeah. Like, four years ago, I was homeless in Newark, New Jersey. You know, begging for change at the end of the Dunkin' Donuts drive through But here I am today. Um, you know, me and my best friend, we're, our first facility rehab is opening up uh, middle of October, you know, four years later. Do you think you carry a lot of weight on your shoulders when you see all the people that do pass away from addiction and you've been able to survive and overcome that? You know, this may sound uh, a little tough, but I feel almost like not numb to it, but in a way, like, I'm a little hardened to it, you know, and it's not necessarily because... I'm like a cold person. It's just if I allowed, you know, this, it's like this, this problem that we're facing as a country is so serious that like, if I let it affect me, like it's happening every day. No joke. Every day I'm hearing people are not making it. So if I did let it affect me in like a very negative way where I lock myself in my room and, you know, and I'm not like, pushing through, I think it gives me more drive to just keep helping, you know what I mean? Or, or to find new ways that may work for people like myself, you know, cause I was, you know, what they call a, you know, a, a chronic relapser. Like, you know, nobody, uh, thought that I was going to make it. Yeah. So high school is <clears throat> where it basically starts. Do you finish high school? I did. I graduated high school, which to be honest, I don't think I was supposed to, um, I, at all, you know, I, I didn't do well in school. I was never too book smart. Um, but I did have some great like relationships that I built like within the school. And I think they were just like, you know what, let's get this kid going, you know? So I did graduate high school. Um, you know, I didn't go to college or anything like that right after high school. I went straight to work and, uh, you know, without having like, Really, without having any, uh, at that point, I was grown. You know, I was my own man, and I uh, I just went straight to work, and that's where things really took off, you do, know. Do you think if you went to college, you would have avoided everything that is about to happen? Um, maybe, maybe I wouldn't have avoided it, but I don't think it would have taken the turn that it did. Like, with the substances that I was using and with, like, because college, there's a lot of partying. There's a lot of shenanigans that goes on but you know if it's uh, I'm I'm not too sure because you know for me anything that I like I end up I used to 
get addicted to. Like it didn't matter first time I smoked pot, first time I did this, that, that. It all was, I needed it, you know? And uh, I, I don't know, you know? But one thing I do know is, is that, like I was saying, like, you know, there's a reason I didn't, to be honest, if I did say, hey, let's go to college, I probably would have ended up wasting a hundred grand going to school because I'm not a book guy. You know, I've always been good with my hands working and, you know, now I apply, you know, all that, like I apply everything I've learned, like while I was out on the street, but I do it in an ethical, legal way. You know, now I, you know, I try to learn business. I try to, to grow as a person. Like I'm very into self-development and, you know, getting other people through their struggles too. Yeah. You know? So walk me through the low points. What happens yeah. right after that? Like the lowest, how, how low does it go? It gets bad, man. So I had, um, I went to Florida in 2012. I went to Florida for my first, uh, real treatment center. I went out to rehab and, uh, you know, I went out there. I did well for like 45 days. I was ready to come home. So I came home within a matter of a month. I slipped up here and then went back down to Florida. I was supposed to be there for 30 days. It ended up being five years. Um, while I was in Florida, that was the first time, um, I started, you know, IVing substances. Um, and, uh, that's where like, you know, thing, my addiction progressed massively. I wasn't at an all time low yet, but that was where like, you know, I learned all the stuff that I, all the things I said I was never going to do. It ended up happening in Florida. Um, I ended up meeting a girl in Florida. It always um, starts with a girl. Always starts with a girl, bro. Um, well, so I ended up meeting a girl, which now is my daughter's mother. Um, and you know, I'm very grateful for her for giving me the uh, the opportunity to be a father. I'm a dad. You know, I have an eight year old daughter that keeps me going every day. She's literally the uh, the most perfect thing in the world to me. Um, but that also was very difficult at the same time because she got pregnant. We were in both in Florida for around. She went down there as well for rehab. Um, I met her out there, so she's in recovery. I'm in recovery. Um, she ended up getting pregnant and after being out there for five years, we moved back up our way so our parents could be involved and the grandparents could be there. You know, we were excited and, um, things didn't work out. You know, I had a different vision. She had different stuff that she wanted to accomplish in life. So we ended up going separate ways, but we co-parent for, for my daughter. And that is when, um, things started getting really bad for me because I moved to New Jersey because they're from, she's originally from New Jersey. So I moved to New Jersey in hopes, you know, I'll be closer to my daughter and, um, you know, Jersey, uh, Newark, New Jersey specifically ended up being a place that, uh, took a piece of me, you know, like, you know, it was a very, very vicious place and I didn't know anything about it. And, you know, I remember I just heard about Newark, you know, people like I've heard people talking about it. I've seen stuff about it on TV. One day I was like, you know what, I'm going to go get something, you know, and I went to Newark and I found it immediately because it's all over the place. And that moment is where um, things change like forever, like for the good, you know, and I ended up... Um, 
you know, back and forth to Newark for a while. And eventually after like a few months of going there and get, I ended up parking my car. I had a crappy old Jeep, you know, I ended up parking it down there and, uh, I ended up homeless out there for, for the next nine months, um, with a terrible habit, you know, and, you know, Newark is in a place that somebody like me belongs, you know, I mean, I'm a, you know, I, I mean, I'll just be transparent, you know, the, I'm, I'm a white kid in a mainly, uh, you know, primarily black neighborhood. And I had a, a very serious problem at that point, you know, and I put myself in a lot of dangerous situations, um, to say the least, you know, I've had guns put held up to my chest for $5. You know, I've had crooked cops drive me around at two in the morning and beat the shit out of me. And, uh, you know, there's been more stuff that I could even more stuff that I could probably really get into right now. But, um, you know, I, uh, I actually, you know, when I was first out there, I met a, a guy, another homeless guy, his name was Quills. Well, he went by Quills and Quills was old timer. He's probably like 65 years old. He's been homeless for like, you know, 30 years. This guy was like, you know, an OG, but one of the nicest kind hearted people that I think I've met in that city, you know? And, um, he ended up like taking me under his wing and like, you know, kind of like in a way, like protecting me, making sure that, uh, you know, nobody was trying to get me. And, you know, we just rocked together. You know, we hung out, we did our stuff together. We looked out for each other when I didn't have something and he did. And, you know, and I'll never forget, we were sitting behind, uh, a nasty dude, nasty abandoned building. And, um, we were sitting on like two milk crates, just sitting there, you know, just sitting there shooting the shit. And he looked at me and he was like, Mills, he used to call me Mills. And he goes, Mills, are you really going to do this Newark thing? And I was like, and I didn't like comprehend what he meant right away. But then I like thought about it and I'm like, you know, this place is a trap. Like when you're there, it's so crazy, but like, it's not even the drug. It's like somehow you just get stuck. Like Kensington is the same way. I'm sure you're familiar with Kensington, but people go out there and a decade goes by. And it's not just mainly because of the drugs, but I think it's because, you know, a person like me, even though like I'm not from there, it's so populated with other addicts and alcoholics and like I fit right in like I blend right into the streets you know it's I felt comfortable in my own skin for the first time in a very long time yeah and it became your safe space even though it wasn't a safe spot dude you couldn't have yeah. said it better like that was home like you know in a way you know like everybody knew me they were familiar with me and you know believe it or not like I actually felt you you nailed it you know I I felt in a way, like, that was my peace, that was my freedom, yeah. being out there, no rules, anything goes, you know? What was your relationship with your parents at that time, and could you have reached out to them to get out of that situation? So, my my parents, um, you know, at that time, unfortunately, like, you know, I used to, you know, I, I would call them every, you know, I'd check in with them every single day, I my dad would every now and then, here's 20 bucks, like, you know, be safe today, like, 
you know, I was I was a master manipulator back then. I used to say, oh, like, I'm, I'm about to go kick in a door. I need money, blah, 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 you know, and to prevent me going to prison or something like that, my dad would be like, all right, here's 20 bucks. But, mm-hmm. you know, at that point, they, uh, my pam- my parents wanted nothing more than to see me get better, you know, but they knew that I, I needed to want it. You know, I couldn't just like, you know, I can't do it for them. I can't do it for, for anybody, unfortunately. So, you know, there were times where my dad was like, Hey, come home, you know, we'll cook dinner. You know, you'll have a warm place to stay for the night. And, uh, I wouldn't accept it, you know, because I wouldn't, because then I'd be an hour and a half away from, you know, my comfort zone. Yeah. And, uh, I did that for a long time. You know, there was times where he, he would drive out there and, uh, you know, loop around trying to, trying to find me. And he found me a couple of times, literally, you know, in, in the city of Newark. What you're describing right now, there's so many, you know, parents, siblings, friends that have individuals, their daughters, you know, their, their sons in these situations as a former addict yourself who has recovered and was in that situation. What advice could you give to those people on how they could save their loved one that was in your position? You know, I, to this, uh, you know, nowadays I deal with parents on a daily basis, like trying to help their children find, uh, resources or whatever it may be. And a lot of parents don't realize how much of a negative impact they're having on their children. All they want to do is help, but realistically what they're doing is, is almost like just allowing their children to continue to use. Like it's very enabling is a big thing. And, you know, I had a situation recently where, you know, this mother was so fearful of her son, you know, that, you know, she'd be giving him like $400 a day. Like, you know, it was very, uh, it was very heartbreaking to see, but you know, as parents this, like when a, when a son or a daughter is struggling with an addiction, the whole family needs to heal. It's not just the kid, like the children that need to go to re- the the kids go to rehab and you know I think the family needs to learn you know how to say no and how to you know like let go and that's extremely hard because as a parent you don't want to see your child suffer you don't want to see your kid out there doing the wrong thing but what I can say is is that you know in order for somebody to get better they need to hit their bottom like they need to be at a des uh, a, a point of desperation and the longer you continue to feed you know the nonsense like give your kids money do this do that you know the longer it's going to take for them to get to a desperate place where they actually are willing to get help you know and um and like i said i know that's hard but you know sometimes you know, a mother and father, the best thing they could do, you know, and it's, it's painful to watch and it's not easy, but the best thing you could do is, is, you know, allow your kids to, cause you're not going to get better if you don't want to. Like I've been to, like I said, 44 programs, probably 25 out of that 44, I was going into rehab for somebody else. You know, my mother was needed me, you know, she wanted me to get better, whatever. But until I wanted it for myself, nothing changed, you know, because it's an internal conflict. It's not, you know, it's something that over time you're battling within yourself. Yeah. And, you know, it's scary, though, for parents because it's like 
right now I could say, oh, yeah, like, don't enable your kid. Don't give them any money. Don't do anything. Like, don't do anything that's going to contribute to their addiction. But as a parent, you know, their kids are the most important thing in the planet for them, you know, and they'd rather not see their kids go to prison and or, you know, parents let their kids use at the house because at least they know they're safe. But that's not really helping anything. That's just prolonging what's what's inevitable. Yeah. A lot of addicts also don't realize in the moment and people that are committing crime that end up in jail, they don't realize the people they're hurting around them, friends, family, whoever. How did it make you feel when you came to terms and realized how many people you hurt along your journey? Oh, man. It's crazy because now being a parent, you know, I uh, I look back on what I put my mother through and what I put my father through. And, you know, I, I'm genuinely I do not think there's anything I can do to like completely fix it. The only thing I could do to like put them at ease is to continue to do good for myself and to continue to be the son that I am and the father I am to my daughter. Like I, uh, you know, for parents out there that are, you know, dealing with this man, like it's, um, they might as well be dealing, battling an addiction as well, you know, with the amount of pain, the sleepless nights, the, oh my God, every time your phone rings, you're terrified because you're worried that it's going to be that call, you know? And, I, uh, you know, to this day, you know, I still, I help my, my mother and father out whenever I can. And, you know, I, uh, I, for years didn't realize how much I used to think I was just hurting myself, like, you know, but it is, uh, it it does a lot to, to the family dynamic. And, you know, I think, uh, my dad, you know, my dad saw, things and has experienced things because of my addiction that he probably would have never experienced in his lifetime. You know what I mean? But because he was my father, he wanted to be there with me and try to keep me safe. Like, unfortunately he had to witness that stuff and I'm forever grateful for him sticking by my side. But, you know, as far as that goes, man, like we don't realize the damage we're doing while we're in it. That's for sure. Yeah, You know, and the, the best thing you could do is to like the best gift any parent could receive is for you to get better. You know, like what more could any parent want if it's something they've been battling for years or even just a few months? It's a it's taxing to say the least. So as a homeless addict in Jersey, mm. walk me through a day in the life, like from the time you wake up to the time. Yeah. You go to sleep, I want to know what you're eating, how you're making money, if anything, how civilians are treating you, Yeah, what that experience is like. So a lot of the times there wasn't much sleep for me. You know, I uh, every now and then I'd catch maybe like a couple hours. I'd find a, a nice little spot to bunk up in a banded building. But, you know, when you're out there, you're on guard a lot, you know, and you don't want to just rest somewhere. It's very uh, risky. So for me, um, I would kind of just get maybe an hour or two wherever I could. Um, you know, whether it was under Integrity House, there was like a little stairwell. There's a, a rehab in Jersey. It's called Integrity House. And there's like a little stairwell. And uh, there's, it's literally like a mud pit down there. But I used to stay down there, for, you know, sleep for a couple hours come back out first thing in the morning. Usually my clothes were damp. They were wet. 
I'd go to the laundromat up the street, which was, you know, coincidentally right where all the, the dealers hung out. And, and I would go in there, I'd dry my clothes off at the laundromat, 25 cents at the time. I would put my stuff in the dryer, get my stuff, uh, you know, a little bit not as damp. And then I'd come out and start the hustle, man. You know, I'd be running around, bartering, you know, boosting at that point. You know, we used to uh, pretty much do anything I can for, for a few bucks to get a bag. You know, a big thing for me, um, I was very crafty. You know, I was very uh, savvy, you know, and I would even go and like knock on doors at one point, like, and be like, hey, I'll clean up your whole entire yard for 15 bucks. Like, I'll, you know, whatever, I'll do any, any work around the house you need done, I can take care of it for a few bucks. And like, I did that for a while, but a lot of people weren't comfortable with it because I didn't look great. You know, I was baggy sweatpants, uh, same sweater for weeks. And, uh, you know, but a big thing was pretty much that everybody kind of kept up with was boosting and, uh, you know, begging, you know, sitting at the end of the drive throughs asking, making up this elaborate story. And I used to have my ID. I never forget. I used to have my ID and say, oh, like I've been stuck out here. You know, I just need a few bucks to catch the bus and go back to New York, blah, blah, blah. You know, I was at that point, you know, I was pretty young. I mean, I was 20, uh, like 26, 27 years old. And I definitely uh, was in the wrong neighborhood. And a lot of people knew that. So, in a way, like, you know, a lot of older people would look out and stuff, but there has been times, man, where, you know, I'll never forget, I was at the end of the uh, drive-through one day on Broad Street, and, you know, I was asking people for their change and whatnot, and a woman in a red Porsche SUV came through the drive-through. She saw me, and the look of terror on her face, like, she looked petrified. Because, like, you know, I mean... And when I mean petrified, like, I'm not a scary person, but when I'm under the influence on coke and all different types of stuff, I probably looked all crazy. You know, my hair was all grown out, my facial hair, I had pick marks all over my face. And, um, you know, the look of fear in her face, like, I'll never forget that that day, actually, because, you know, and then as she creeped up past me and I'm, like, trying to wave her down and get her to roll down her window, she, like, gets to the right where the street meets the end of the... Uh, drive through and she rolls down her window and says get a job bum you know this old lady in a Porsche and I'm like you know and at that moment I was like man like what has happened to me like at one point like you know listen I I come from a good home you know I I never really like went without growing up like we weren't wealthy but we weren't poor and uh here I am you know, wearing a size eight and a half shoe. I'm a size 10 and a half, you know, and uh, I had the same sweat outfit on for nine, 10 weeks at a time. What about hygiene? Are, are you brushing your teeth? Are you taking a shower? What does whenever, that look like? Whenever uh, the opportunity would present itself, of course, but it didn't present itself often. So I used to actually go to the Newark airport. Um, the bus would go right there. It's literally like three minutes from five minutes from like the ghetto where I used to hang out. And, um, I'd go to the Newark airport and they would allow us to sleep in the airport. They would allow us to use the bathrooms and get ourselves cleaned up. So I would try to get to the airport 
like once every two to three days, you know, at, at least. But there were times where, you know, before I knew about the airport and all that, like there were times where I went weeks without taking care of myself, you know, and, you know, there's been times where I've gone seven days without eating a bite of food or, you know, even there was uh, a couple times where <clears throat> I, uh, I was awake for six, seven days at a time. And uh, that's a scary feeling, man, because you start losing, like, the sense of reality, you know, you start getting, uh, like, reality isn't necessarily what it normally is. Is it like what they talk about with meth monsters and, and things like that? Similar, very similar. I mean, you know, when you're awake, your body's exhausted, but your brain is like, I was like running on jet fuel for for seven days at a time and my body was exhausted, but my brain was like, bum, 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 going, going, going. So, you know, you start getting to a point where paranoia comes. And then, you know, once the paranoia comes, then that's followed by like, everybody's out to get you. You know, oh, that's every car, you just saw the same car five times. You think they're coming to get you. Like, you know, it's a very, very difficult and sad way to live what are some crazy things you're seeing other homeless people doing around you Dude. maybe like the craziest thing you saw i got some so i'll give you a few so they're um in newark there's you know there's these they're buildings and you know you knock on the door the doorman who's like the doorman the the dealers will pay the doorman like a bundle a day or whatever a, ba a couple bags a day to watch the door to make sure the cops aren't coming. These are dope holes, you know? So you knock on the door, the doorman lets you in, the dealer serves you, and then you leave, you know, and go on with your day. There was a guy with no arms and no legs, and this guy was addicted to crack cocaine and heroin. He had no arms and no legs. So he literally would, with no arms and no legs, you know, be able to fix up his stuff somehow do his stuff like you know i've seen uh unfortunately a gentleman get shot to my father was there for that one um you know a young kid a 17 year old kid um get shot out there and uh you know a white jeep we heard tires screeching we were at a mcdonald's we heard tires screeching and then a white jeep comes flying by and all of a sudden it was like a barrage of just you know clink 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 you hear the you know bullets bouncing off shit my dad was sitting in the car two cars down from where my dad was sitting the back window got blown out and went through the driver seat so mind you like my dad this is all like my dad's like terrified you know he's a grown man now and he hasn't seen anything like this in his lifetime and uh that's like what I was referring to before about him not having seen certain things in his life that he never should have to see. But, um, you know, pregnant women crawling up and down the stairs thinking they dropped a piece of Coke, like literally, you know, women that are nine months pregnant, 10 months pregnant, you know, selling their bodies. And it's a, it's a vicious, vicious cycle out there, man. Are they like having sex with each other, the homeless people? Is, is there like a hookup culture? Not really. No, it's not. I mean, I'm sure there are. I mean, I, I, that's like the last thing that I wanted to do while I was out there. Like I didn't want nothing but just my, what I was out there doing, my drugs. And, but you know, I mean, there's a lot of, 
I mean, it's definitely a thing. You know, there's a lot of, um, you know, prostitutes and stuff like that. And, and people have their needs. But, I mean, for me, man, uh, you know, in Newark, like, you know, HIV is a very serious thing out there. Hep C, like, it's, yeah. it's a city riddled with needles and drugs and all types of stuff. Is it like what we see in TV and movies where, like, cops will come to homeless people to get information or tips, see if they've seen anything? Out there, man, the cops are ruthless. Like, they're not going to go to the homeless. They're going to find, you know, anybody they can and yoke them up and throw them in the back of the car and literally threaten to knock all their teeth out and say, hey, you know, if you don't, you know, where did you get your shit? Oh, I don't know where I got it. It was some random guy. They'll say bullshit, you know, and then literally they will knock your teeth out. Like, it's almost like... You know, you don't think that type of stuff exists until you're in a in a city like that. You know what I mean? Because I've seen uh, I've seen it. I, I've I've been through it. You know, it was one time. Uh, you know, I was I wasn't even doing nothing wrong. I was driving, and a, and a couple detectives were driving towards me. They put their spotlight right in my face while I'm driving. They flip around. I did have stuff on me and you know they yanked me out of the car threw me in the back of their car towed my car took my shit literally drove me around for hours <clears throat> just threatening me you mm. know and then eventually um you know they dragged me out of that because i was being an, i was mouthing off to them and i was being a jerk and uh you know they dragged me out of the car and beat my ass you know right on the side of the street it was like almost three in the morning i had no clue where i was and uh you know they even took one of my, even one of my shoes, you know? They don't care. That's wild. I know. Now, if we ran your record today, do you have any arrests or any yeah. any type of... Yeah, but nothing substantial. I have uh, quite a few different, like, possession things. I have some... I've had a couple... Three, three DUIs, thankfully, only one of them stuck. Three DUIs. Three DUIs. For alcohol or for drugs? Um, all drugs. All and, drugs. And all of them... I wasn't even driving. Most of the time I, I had overdosed in the car and the police show up. Yeah. You know, it's... Uh, so you never went to jail like for a long period or anything? Your jail was kind of like the rehab facilities? Correct. That was my uh, that was my institution. So before you know? we get to the rehabs, yeah. give me the worst time where you were or you're, you nearly succumbed to an overdose. Well... So full transparency, and this is like tough to, it's a tough thing for me to talk about, but I, I'm actually okay nowadays, but you know, I've been pronounced unalive three times. Um, one time in Waterbury, Connecticut, one time in Newark and one time in Brewster. Um, you know, there has been over 20 overdoses that I've had. Um, but those three are the ones that like I, I will never forget, you know, and one, uh, two of them, it was just black. Like I didn't know what had happened until the EMTs, you know, woke me up and they're like, he's back, he's back. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? My eyes or my ears are bleeding. My nose is bleeding. And, uh, you know, I'd just been Narcan. So I'm very out of it. I feel sick. Um, but the one time, this is a wild story. I, um, at this point, you know, I had, it was like one of the times where I was in and out of these facilities. You know, I had like 30 days sober 
I had dropped my daughter off in Jersey. And on my way home, I was like, you know what? I'm going to get one bag. I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to hold on to it. I get it. I drive all the way back to Brewster. Um, you know, I pulled into the Burger King parking lot um, on Route 22. And weirdly, my neighbor, who's a EMT, like was in the parking lot. And he came up to my car. He's like, hey, Will, what's going on, man? What are you doing here? And I'm like, oh, I'm just hanging out, getting ready to leave. Um, he's like, all right, man, I'll see you later. I ended up doing not even a quarter of what was in this bag. Like it was literally a, a, a couple grains of salt, you know. Um, I immediately did it. I put my car in drive. And I get onto the main road, and that's all I could remember, right? Lights out. So my car thankfully rolled to a stop in the middle of this main road, Route 22. Um, this is where it gets wild. So I have, you know, two very good friends I grew up with. Um, one of them had saw my car at the time. I had an orange uh, WRX you know, very, you can't miss it. It was a bright orange car. And, um, so he is in the car with his mother and I'm up here and he's beeping the horn, like messing with me. And I was stopped in the middle of the road. He's like, he's like, you know, he's probably thinking like, what the hell's going on? He thought I was on my phone because my head was down. Um, so eventually, you know, he pulls up behind me real close. He's holding the horn, like messing with me, yelling out the window and I didn't know any of this. I was unconscious. He gets out of the car and realized, this is like one of my best friends, gets out of the car and realized what was going on. And literally, he, you know, immediately he called 911. And, you know, when I came to, I looked to my right. Like after the EMTs got there, they Narcan me. I came to and I looked to my right and I saw him, his mother, and my other best friend standing on the side of the road, all crying. And I'm like, I'm like, whoa, like what is happening? You know what I mean? Like divine intervention, my best friend, like found me overdosed in the middle of the fucking, like what are the chance, you know, for him to be pulling up on Route 22, which is like a very busy road, for him to be pulling up, see my car, know that something's wrong. He said he felt like something was wrong. So he gets out. He called the called 911. You know, he was hitting me in the chest trying to keep me. And, uh, you know, he saved my life that day by calling calling the ambulance and, uh, and, and being there. If it wasn't for him, I bet you people would have just drove around me. Mm. Everybody would have kept driving around me. Are you, you know? still friends with him to this day? Yes. Now, yeah. if that ambulance didn't have Narcan, would you have lived? I don't think so. No. Definitely not. That's wild. Yeah. I mean, because there's some states that it's not mandated Correct. to carry it. I think it's getting a lot more, you know, nowadays you don't even need a prescription for it. You could go into any pharmacy and get it pretty much. Um, but yeah, man, that was uh, that was one of the ones where weird stuff was happening while I was unconscious. Like, you know, I had like a... I guess you could say like an outer body type of deal, like situation where I literally was like, you know, like an aerial view of everything that was happening. And then, 
you know, when I woke up, I was like back in my car, you know, I was in my seat. And then when I got in the ambulance and they took me to the hospital, the same thing happened. I must have went unconscious again because the Narcan wears off, you know, and that's what's dangerous, man, is, you know, Narcan can wear off and you can fall back into your overdose. And um, I was in the ambulance and then all of a sudden I remember saying, like, I'm really tired. And then I closed my eyes again. And um, next thing I know, I was like, aerial view, like looking at the ambulance driving and, and I kept hearing like, you know, we, like I kept, we lost them, we lost them, we lost them. And then out of nowhere, boom, I'm back. It was very weird. So, you know, a lot of people wonder what happens like when you, I believe that something does happen for sure when people you know, crossover. I don't, there's something, I don't know what, because thankfully it wasn't my time, but. Did you continue to use after this? Um, after that? Yes, I did. Why do you think you continued even after going through that experience? Well, so when it comes to this stuff, it's, I always tell people like willpower, it doesn't exist when you're struggling with an addiction, you know, like, if you don't get help, you're not gonna, there's no shot that you're just gonna get better. Like it really does take work. Like addiction, it's, it's a chemical imbalance of the brain that is caused from the narcotics, you know? And without those chemicals being stabilized in your brain, you know, you the chances of success are slim to none, you know? And to be honest, like a lot of places like these facilities that I've been to in the past, they don't necessarily um, fix the problem. It's more of just they, you know, you're there for 30 days, you dry out, you have some some sober time under your belt, and then they send you on your way. And, um, you know, for, for me, it was life or death. It wasn't like a joke. And unfortunately, I, you know, I had good insurance, so I was taken advantage of by a lot of different places um, during this time. There was a lot of bad stuff going on in South Florida with insurance fraud and all types of stuff with rehabs back in the day. Um, they call it body brokering, you know, and um, there were people that used to get paid to go to rehab and there were facilities getting kickbacks for clients going to rehab and, you know, a 19 year old kid that doesn't necessarily want to get sober, you know, a marketer comes up to him and says, Hey, I'll give you a thousand bucks, go get high and go to this rehab. Of course he's going to do it, you know? So, you know, nowadays that stuff doesn't really exist the way it used to, but that's why, you know, we're doing what we're doing. Me and my partner, we're opening up this rehab is because man, like, you know, everybody says, Oh, we're going to be different. You know, we're going to do something different. Well, here's the thing. I'm gonna do something different. And it's because I've learned everything that doesn't work, you know, through my experience, like I can't even imagine the amount of money that has gone into, into trying to keep me alive, you know, and if I could prevent that for, uh, you know, another family, I'm going to like, you know, we're humans. People, people unfortunately have uh, struggles, you know? I mean, 
people end up taking the wrong path. And I, I just don't believe that, like, nobody's too far gone. Nobody. And there's a lot of people that say, like, oh, I've been using for 20, 30 years. I can't go. That's bullshit, you know? If you want it bad enough, you will get it. Anything in life. So these rehabs were paying you personally? The rehabs weren't. So, like, how it used to work is, and, and I tried to steer clear of this because I already knew what time it was. It's not a good thing. People were dying left and right. So marketers would, you know, go around and find vulnerable addicts and alcoholics. Um, you know, they would say, hey, are you looking to go to rehab? And hey, I can give you two grand to stay for 30 days. These are marketers. So they're like subcontractors pretty much. Who are getting a piece of the pie from the rehabs. Correct. Wow. That's kind of like private prisons yep. and whatnot with the state and they're getting paid per each person. Yeah. Profiting off of another man's downfall. And dude, I, I at one point or another for about four years was, uh, was brokered through South Florida. You know, I, I was, my family was manipulated. I was manipulated, um, into, you know, I was sold a dream for so many years. Like, Hey, you know, this place has a pool. This place is going to help you. This is what's best for you. And then none of it was true. It's just, you know, everybody was looking for a paycheck. And, you know, I've seen a lot of people die because, you know, they got that $2,000 for going to detox. And then, you know, and they end up going out on a run that, that takes their life, you know, their lives. Now, you are a frequent flyer at these rehab facilities. Yes. Yeah. What what are these facilities like? Give us like a summary of what you can expect when you go in. Is it kind of like a prison or a jail? Um. So, so the model I could I've been to a lot of different types because there's a ton of different types. But you know, there's like the bigger, more commercial programs that have you know fifty to a hundred beds, and then there's the individualized programs that have only six beds, which is honestly what worked for me. You know, I went to an individualized program on my 44th time and uh, it changed my life forever. So, you know, these programs that you go to, like, you know, the ones you go on Google, you type in best rehab uh, in, in the country and, you know, they pay for their clicks, you know, so they'll get to the top of the Google list you know, you'll go to the rehab, they'll fly you out or, you know, you may have to pay for your flight, whatever. Um, they'll get you to the rehab. You get there, you do an intake, which is, you know, they strip you. They'll make sure you don't have anything on you. And then, uh, you know, they'll get you medicated and whatnot. And then uh, they'll send you to your room. And But these by far are nothing at all close to jail. A lot of them are very cushy and luxurious nowadays. Um, but to be honest, it's more of like a, like a, like a damn high school reunion for a lot of like the bigger, bigger places. Because I mean, imagine this, imagine, you know, maybe 50, 50 kids all between the ages of, let's say, you know, 18 to 28 years old, all struggling with addiction and mental health issues. It's co-ed and everybody's trying to get their lives back together. At the same time, it's like one big, you know, it gets uh, it gets a little hectic. But but I'll tell you what, you know, a lot of these places like a lot of these places will do anything for if you're willing to, to do the work, they will do anything it takes to help you. And 
you know, after going to so many, you know, I realized that it's very hard to get better in a setting where let's say there's 50 clients and only two therapists. That's why when I went to treatment for the last time, I went to a small, more individualized program. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's actually, it was ran out of a house. It's licensed, you know, everything, real deal facility, but it only had six clients. And um, I was able to get, you know, one-on-one help. You know, they offer um, equine therapy, which is like going down to the horse farms and walking with the horses. They have pools usually. Um, You know, they bring you to the gym two days a week or whatever it may be. You're usually in group around eight hours a day. So, you know, you wake up, eat your breakfast, and uh, it's group time, you know. The weekends, um, usually, like most facilities, will bring you on like an outing. And, you know, whether it's the beach, whether it's to a movie, whatever, just to kind of get you out and make you feel like uh, you're not uh, confined, you know. Any cell phone usage or no? So there are facilities out there that, that allow it. I think it's a terrible idea to allow somebody to have it on them. I think most places allow you to access it, to make your 15-minute phone call at night to your wife, to your family. But, you know, I think having it on you full-time, it's a it's a liability, number one, because nowadays you could order alcohol off Uber, Uber Eats. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and you could also, uh, you know, call a, a local dealer. You could, you know, so a lot of places do monitor it and it's very limited. Um, some places don't allow it at all. But... You know, I do think it's important, though, to, you know, in my opinion, like that little 15 minute phone call at night really kept me going. You know what I mean? It kept me motivated and allowed me to focus on why I was there. And you had your daughter at this point, too. Yep. Last time I went to treatment, she was um, probably I think she was three, three years old. She gave you something to live for. Dude, if it wasn't for her, 100 percent, I wouldn't be here. Like, I didn't have a purpose until, you know, and, and, and it wasn't always, you know, I think, I think it's like, I'm so stubborn to the point where I was like, dude, I can't let another man raise my kid. You know what I mean? And this little girl deserves, uh, she deserves the world. So, you know, there was a lot of times where I was having a hard time, you know, I would slip, but I would immediately go right back to rehab or immediately seek some sort of help because at that point I was a father, you know, I didn't have the, I couldn't go disappear for a month or two. You know what I mean? I couldn't just go on a run and possibly never come back. You know, my, my, uh, my daughter one day she'll understand, but she truly saved my life. Do you think you'll ever sit down with her and, and have this conversation with her? Absolutely. Absolutely. And how will you make sure that she doesn't follow down because as you said addiction runs yes in the family genetics yeah genetics how do you make sure that that doesn't happen to her you know i'll tell you what man if i think a big part of like parenting is you know you tell a kid not to do something like you the more you hammer hey don't do this like the more somebody's going to want to do it you know what i mean it's like as kids naturally like whenever my mother told me not to do something that's usually the thing i did so I'm a, I'm a very transparent person. You know, I, I believe that my daughter knows what I do for a living. Um, she knows that I help people that are sick, um, you know, that are struggling and maybe don't have like a, 
that don't know what they want with life. But when that time comes, you know, for me, the one thing I wish I had was full transparency, you know, growing up, like from my family, like we didn't sit down and talk about like the dangers of like, you know, drugs and, and, and alcohol. Like, you know, it wasn't a, uh, it wasn't something that like, you know, everybody in my family like warned us about, you know? So for me, I mean, I think it's important to be transparent and I think there's a, a way to, to go about everything, but you know, I don't think, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with her knowing the truth eventually, because then she'll know she can come to me with whatever I'm not going to be, you know, and for me, like yelling or, or being angry, isn't going to solve anything. Life's about finding solution, you know? And I really believe that, you know, if a kid is struggling by, by screaming and reprimanding them, like that's not really necessarily going to help anything. You know, you got to, have like a healthy boundary with how you, uh, with how you, you know, uh, deliver your message to somebody, you know, and especially a, a kid. Absolutely. What have been some triggers for you after getting clean and mm. what have you done to overcome those triggers? So believe it or not, the last, you know, I'll have four, four years in, um, December, but nowadays my first six months, I experienced like triggers, you know, little stuff like I'd, uh, you know, I would watch a show that would, you know, set off something in my mind. And, you know, I always look at it like this, like feelings are visitors. They come and they go. I always say that because a trigger, like, you know, if you get into the science of it, it, it maximum 15 to 30 minutes, you're, you're going to have cravings, right? If you can get through that craving, the next one is not going to be as difficult to get through. You know, a lot of people give up before the miracle happens. Like things really do get better. Like nowadays, like, you know, I've gone and gone on interventions and uh, have seen piles of drugs in front of I've seen people overdosed. I've had to save lives sober. You know, like I've uh, now I don't get triggered. I just feel more it like makes me sick you know, to my stomach now, because, you know, I have a, a, a healthy fear of like the drugs, but I'm also like aware of like, you got to respect it in a way. Cause it's more, I I'm aware of how powerful it is yeah. and how quickly things could change, you know? Yeah. How, how do you think we get that message out to the youngsters before they start trying it to know how powerful it really is? Because these individuals don't know until they try it. And then once they try it, it's too late. Too late. You're 100% right. How do we right. change that? Well, I think for for myself, like I could speak on what I can do is just do my best to try to spread awareness. You know, I mean, if, you know, I think a lot of people nowadays, like a big issue is, you know, the educate, the way people are being educated isn't necessarily helping. It's like more of a joke. Like I remember, you remember in school, did you guys have dare? Yeah, we had dare, of course. Yeah. Like, I feel like that was kind of like, not a single person was like, oh my God, that's making me not want to go use. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I think, you know, if somebody like at a younger age, somebody like myself or you know, somebody that has that life experience going into school, speaking to these, to these kids, like, like we're friends, you know, instead of more of it being like, Hey, don't do this. It's better off to, to just, to spread the awareness of what this could be, you know, like, Hey, 
nobody's immune to this. You know, if you consistently do this, no matter what, you're going to end up sick. You're going to end up physically addicted. And there's a good chance that you may be suffering for the next God knows how many years because uh, addiction is a real thing, you know. So that's actually something where me and my my partner, my best friend Connor, um, you know, we've really been trying to like get into schools and, and talk with these kids. And, you know, the more people we could get a message out to, the better. Yeah. Tell us about what you do now for work and yeah, what you're creating. So... so the last uh, few months, I've actually, I stepped away from a, uh, a job at a treatment facility that I was with for quite a while, but me and my best friend, Connor, um, we grew up together, we used together for years, and we got sober together. He's got 10 years sober, I have, uh, I'll have four years in December. You know, we've worked for two or three different facilities together. Um, he has a large presence on TikTok as well. So, you know, a lot of work we do is through social media and we've realized like if we want to get something done right, if we want to help these people right, we got to do it ourselves. Like a lot of programs out there that we've worked for or that we've been affiliated with, you know, we just believe that this could be done a lot better than it's being done. You know, money isn't everything. And I feel that a lot of programs as they grow they lose sight of what's important and that's the client, you know, the client's experience. And, you know, we decided that, um, <clears throat> we were gonna <clears throat> open up our, uh, our own treatment facility in Southern California. Um, it is, uh, it's a six bed detox residential. So we're going to be like a 28, 30 day stay. Um, you know, it's called California wellness and it's, uh, it's our baby. It's where, where, you know, we're going to we're going to help as many people as we can. And uh, we're going to keep our integrity doing that. You know, we're going to keep our eyes on on the fact that we have the power to, to save lives now, you know, and, you know, a lot of people, uh, I think, get maybe uh, experience a little bit of success and their uh, their their values change, you know, their lifestyle changes. And for me. I mean, this was the only thing that has kept me sober, was helping other addicts and alcoholics. You, you developed a purpose through your own struggles. Exactly. And not just that, but, like, to me, all my struggles, they're an asset now. Like On-job training. Dude, <laughs> let me tell you, man, there's nothing anybody could tell me that would, like, you know, shock me or make me think of you a certain way. Like, I've seen it all and I've been through it all, you know, and... In a way, I'm uh, I'm proud of who I am. You know, I don't uh, I don't ever feel embarrassed to to talk about my past or maybe even to, you know, to to share some of these you know war stories because, <laughs> you know, although it, it's hard to hear and some of it was painful, but I really believe that I you know I take a lesson with me from every single thing that happens in my life. You know, even like stuff like this, like I'm I'm normally. <clears throat> I have a difficult time like sharing my story. I get anxious, but for whatever reason, it's not up to me. Like I feel like the universe, whatever it is out there, like this is my purpose. And if I don't, I could save a life today. You know, somebody could relate to me. And for all I know, this is what gets them, this makes them decide to get help. You know, if I could do it, maybe they can do it. You know, absolutely. If you could go back to your teenage self, 
<clears throat> right after that accident, when you're starting to dabble in substance mm -hmm. use, what would you say to that person? What advice would you give him? I would probably say, hang on tight <laughs> and, uh, and never give up because there were a few points, man, where I, uh, I wanted to give up, you know, like a lot, there was, as time went on, it got worse and worse, but at a very young age, man, I was exhausted, you know, and for people out there right now that, that might be battling this, like, I can guarantee you that they feel that there is no way out, you know, that, that this is what it is. This is going to be their lives until the drugs take them or they do something that puts them in prison for life or they die of an overdose. But 100% there is a way out. The only thing you need to do is literally allow somebody else that has gotten through what you're struggling with, let them take charge. You don't know shit, you know, and until... I let go of like what I thought I knew, nothing changed. I needed to literally let somebody, you know, show me the path because, you know, I don't know. I didn't even know who I was. Yeah. I, you know what I mean? Like if I didn't have uh, the support and the people in my life that did help me, no shot I'd be here. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's scary, man, because a lot of people... Don't think like, oh, I can't tell my parents, right? That's a big thing I get every day on, on social media. People, how do I get sober without needing to go to rehab or detox or telling my family? Well, here's the thing. Like the first thing that you're do, you can't do is keep it a secret. Keeping like they say our, our secrets keep us sick, you know, and if you're off the rip, like trying to keep it a secret and do it on your own the chances of success are like, are like nothing. And you know, it's hard to help ask for help sometimes. Oh. It's embarrassing. It, it's hard. It takes a lot. 100%. But asking for help can be the change you need in your life too. Well, it doesn't always have to be painful to ask for help. You know, it's just, you got to set aside your pride. And sometimes, man, like it's best doing it with somebody, you know, like somebody that you can trust that you can lean on to go to your partner, your spouse, whatever it is, and say, hey, I'm having some struggles. Like, you know, a lot of people have the fear of the unknown. Like, everybody makes it up to be worse than it's going to be. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we always make the, oh, my God, it's going to go this way. We, we have this whole vision in our head on what's going to happen, and it never ends up happening that way, you know? Well, that's how it is in, like, relationships and you know, breakups and whatnot, that fear of not knowing if the person's ever going to talk to you again or anything like yeah. that. It just, it's that unknown feeling. Yeah. But Will, thank you so much for coming course, on the buddy. show today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so pleasure. much for having me, man. Yeah, man. Looking forward to seeing more of you. And, Absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, we wish you the best. We'll plug in all thank your you, information man. in the descriptions yeah. for people to reach out. Awesome. And uh, you definitely have a book in you. You might want to think about that Dude. too. You're not the first person that said that. Yeah, so. get, get the wheels churning. Yeah, man. I appreciate it. Awesome. Man. Thank you, brother.